I get, I get all my nicknames from Todd, so that's where it all comes from. Good morning, church. It is wonderful to be with you this morning. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here at Church on Mill, and I'm thrilled to be sharing God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be in Acts 13. If you've been with, with us the last couple months, you know that uh, for, for months upon months, we've just been working our way through the book of Acts, seeing what God would say to us in passage after passage. Um, a warm welcome to those who are joining us virtually. It's wonderful to have you with us. One of the greatest theological thinkers in, in American history, not, not world history, but American history, was a, was a fellow by the name of Charles Hodge. And uh, when he was asked at the very end of his career, what was his greatest legacy? This is what he said. He said that nothing new has come out of Princeton Seminary while I've been here. Right? Nothing new has come out of Princeton Seminary while I've been here. Isn't that interesting? Obviously, uh, that was a long time ago, and bun- bunches of new stuff have come out of Princeton uh, since then. But Hodge, in, in his time as a theologian and as a pastor, he understood that the primary work of the pastor and of the theologian is, is not to create new ideas. It's not to produce new concepts about God. Rather, the work of the pastor and the theologian is to look backwards to God's work in history, to how he's revealed himself, and then to apply that ancient truth to contemporary circumstances. So rightly so, Hodge says, my greatest legacy is that nothing new has come out of my seminary. Well, today we'll read a, read a sermon given by the Apostle Paul. We will In fact, hear a sermon about a sermon today. How could you have been so lucky? One of the interesting questions we need to answer is this. Does Paul agree with Hodge? Is Paul fundamentally saying nothing new in his sermon this morning? It's a fascinating question to think about, and I'm thrilled that you've asked it uh, and that we can work through it together. What we'll find out is that the plan of God in history has always been Jesus. And that this answer is fabulous, it's joy-giving, and it's wonderful beyond measure. And it's ours today. So read with me Acts 13. You can flip there. I'll I'll be reading the full text, 13 through 52 uh, verses. verse Verse 13 through 52. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Pergia of Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Pergia and came to Antioch of Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Saul, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great 
during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. He put up with them. That's, that's the language of fatherhood, right? You put up with your kids. And, and in the Exodus, God says, Israel, you will be my firstborn. Israel becomes the son of God. And so we use his language. He put up with them in Egypt, or on the way. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me is one coming, the sandal of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem and are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to our fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. And David saw corruption. His body rotted, his bones wasted. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. His body breathed again. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone, absolutely everyone, who believes is freed, is justified from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them on the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what Paul was speaking. They reviled him, But Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, and they said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside, and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout woman of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You've completed Sermon 1 for the morning time for the second sermon. Isn't this an interesting sermon? And don't we have to ask ourselves, where does Paul get this? Where does he get all of this new theology? Is it in fact new? Well, before we answer that, we we can simply look at the book of Acts, and we'd realize that this is the third full-length sermon recorded in the book of Acts, right? There's been two other sermons, full-length sermons, before. The very first one is in Acts 2, where the apostle Peter uh, preaches on the day of Pentecost. And then the the deacon, or the proto-deacon, Stephen, preaches the second sermon in Acts 7. Now, if you'll remember... We don't know if Paul heard Peter's sermon. 
We could guess, but we don't know. But we do know that Paul heard Stephen's sermon. And, and we know that Stephen's sermon was of such power and significance and conviction that Paul was more willing to condemn Stephen to death than to believe his message, which is exactly what he did. Stephen was executed because of the sermon he preached. So if you look at these three sermons, they're actually remarkably similar. They refer to Egypt and how the Israelites began their journey of salvation in Egypt. But then God led them out of Egypt. And in time, they received the law of Moses. Multiple of these sermons, at least two, refer to the incorruptibleness of the Lord's Messiah, that there would be one who would never rot in the grave. And these sermons, all three of them, refer to the hardness of listeners' hearts. They refer to the murder of an innocent Jesus and the resurrection of the reigning Jesus. Just as we um, have read earlier in the book of Acts, we can see that Paul, at least in the book of Acts, is, is not saying anything new. So as we look at our text today, what are we doing here, right? Well, let me say three things that I want us to spend time doing. Let's look at the conclusion that Paul makes. Let's look at his main point and see, is there something we have to lean into and listen to? So let's look at Paul's main point. Secondly, let's look at how he gets there. What evidence has led him to this conclusion? And then finally, we have to ask, so what? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? So we'll look at Paul's conclusion. We'll look at what led him to that conclusion. And then we'll look at how it'll apply to us. So in some sense, Paul is saying nothing new, and we can affirm that. But in a very real sense, he, he is saying something new. Look with me at verse 38. For be it known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. <clears throat> Excuse me. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This, this claim is not original to Paul. This claim is throughout the book of Acts up to this point. We can look back in chapter 10, where Peter says, to him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness. And what does Peter say? Peter says that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. Everyone who believes receives forgiveness. It's not a new idea. Acts 3, back in chapter 3, verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Why? Why should we turn back? That your sins may be blotted out 
and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Well, let's go back a little further. We have, okay, Acts 10, Acts 3, forgiveness, repentance, refreshment, sins are blotted out. But Acts 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, why should I be baptized, Pastor Andy? For the forgiveness of your sins. For you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why should I believe in Jesus? Because he forgives everyone who believes in his name. This is the overwhelming message of the book of Acts. This is the overwhelming message of the whole Bible. To anyone who believes, there is forgiveness. But in our chapter, chapter 13, verse 38 goes right into verse 39. And this is a development. This is something that our Charles Hodge ears tunes into. Paul says this, And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, if you would be reading a different translation, they're going to bring it out a little differently, and, and they'll say this, By him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. To justify, to, to be declared by God free from the law. Friends, the message of the Bible is that God is perfect, God is just, God is holy, and he's altogether righteous. And his intention from the inception of creation is that we, humanity, made in his image, would reflect that. That we would be a mirror of his character. That we would be just. We would be holy. We would be righteous. When we think about the law of Moses, that is at the heart of it. That we would be a people for God's own possession. The problem is that the whole storyline of the Old Testament is about failure after failure. How man, left in his own strength, was doomed to never meet the standard. The law of God, which purpose was to reveal God to his people, resulted in only condemning his people. And each time, each time failure happened, his people were alienated further and further and further from God. So what is Paul's conclusion? Paul's conclusion is that the law of Moses could never put you in a right relationship with God in the first place. The law of Moses only condemns. And if that's true, then how, how might we be saved? Only through faith, not through works. Paul's conclusion is that let it be known that through Jesus, 
forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. That everyone, everyone what? Everyone in general? Everyone who follows the Ten Commandments? No. Paul's conclusion is that everyone who believes is freed, is justified from everything that the law of Moses could not free you from. Jesus is bringing freedom to his people. Jesus is bringing righteousness and forgiveness to his people. But how did Paul come to this conclusion? What led Paul from being the the Pharisee who kept the law to the T to now saying the law is slavery, the law condemns. We actually have to be freed from our sin and from the law. How does Paul get there? Well, we see his theology rolled out like a, like a red carpet being rolled out in the sermon preceding uh, verse 38 and 39. The history of Israel is a history of God choosing, moral failure, God saving. God choosing, moral failure, God saving. Over and over again. So you can see that Paul is outlining a history of salvation. And what he's saying is that this salvation is, was never based on works. The salvation of God in history was never based on what his people did. So you see verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. Did he choose them because they were great? No, they're, they're kind of lame. Did, did he choose them uh, because of how obedient they were? No. Abraham was an idol maker. He sold his wife into sex slavery. Abraham was a schmuck. But the God of this people Israel chose our fathers out of his grace, out of his mercy. And he made this people great. His power, his work, made the people great. And where did he make them great? He made them great in slavery. But he led them out. He saved them. He delivered them. This is the start of the story that God is in the business of saving schmucky people. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So just like uh, some of us who are older and um, by the grace of God have saved up money and when we kick the can, we can't take it with us, so we're going to leave it in a will to our kids, right? God's saying that Israel, not, no, God's, God's not going to kick the can, so that's a limited analogy. But God, for his son, gave an inheritance. He gave the land of Canaan but they kept messing it up and they couldn't keep it. Why couldn't they keep it? Because over and over again they said, God, we don't want to be your son. We don't want to be your son. We don't want to be your son. So what did God do? Did he kick them out and never looked at them again? No. He appointed judges. And after that, after 450 years, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. The judges were meant 
to deliver. The judges were meant to save. The judges were meant to lead the people of God into the will of God. But the fact is, is that every cycle of this happening, every 40 years, every 20 years, every 10 years, failure. And the end of the book of Judges repeats over and over, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what is 21? Verse 21 says, So they asked God for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish. If you know the history, that, you know, there's pros and cons of Saul, but he's not the king that, he's not the king of God's heart. He's not the king that would be submitted to God in his life. So he removed him, verse 22, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. He raised up David. Well, what's interesting about David? Is the most interesting about David um, that he killed Goliath? That's not what Paul says. Is the most uh, interesting with David that um, he had outlandish moral failure? No, that's not what Paul says. Paul says this, of whom he testified, of whom God testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. A man after my heart that will do my will. So we've just looked, in, in a couple of verses, we looked at the whole history of Israel. Moral failure after moral failure. People not doing the will of God. People wanting to be their own kings in their own lives. And God gave them a king who would do his will. But we know that uh, ultimately, David wasn't a perfect king. We know that he did have outlandish moral failure. But what did God promise David? That's where Paul leads us. So Paul's conclusion is that we're all forgiven if we believe in Jesus. And he's getting there from David. So we've seen him leading us through the history of Israel, but now he's at David and he's like, look, there's a history of utter failure. God's people can't keep God's law. But God made a promise to David. And we can bank that even though we will fail, God will be faithful. So it says in um, uh, 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Well, where does he promise this? We have to look back all the way to the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, we just recently spent about a year going through 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel is right after 1 Samuel. And we see this recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God is speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. Right? This is, this is what will happen to all of us we will all lie down and die. And when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will, what's God going to do? I will establish his kingdom 
forever. I'll establish his kingdom forever. Well, how's that looking for the Jews right now in, in Paul's day? Uh, Caesar is on the throne and Jerusalem is a backwaters trading post of the Roman Empire. Where is this eternal kingdom? God. Paul is saying that God has fulfilled this promise of an eternal kingdom in Jesus Christ. And the anticipation of the people of God from the time of David would be when God would raise up this king, King Jesus. Jesus is the Savior who will sustain his people in God's will. Jesus doesn't simply lead us out of Egypt. Jesus won't simply lead us out of the Arizona heat to Flagstaff. Jesus doesn't simply give us some farms and houses that we really, really want. Jesus did something that David never could do. Jesus did something that the judges never could do, that the law of Moses itself couldn't do. Jesus, King Jesus, gives a kingdom that can't be shaken. He gives an inheritance that will never be taken away. Jesus makes a people far vaster and greater than any that was led out of Egypt. Jesus is the one who will do the will of God and will never, will never fall into moral disrepute. Jesus is the Son of God who in verse 33, God says, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus is the resurrected King who has defeated death, of, of whom God says, or of whom the psalmist says, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. In every way you can imagine, Jesus is a better King than David was. David's kingdom was taken away. Jesus' won't be. David rotted. His corpse is not with us. That will never happen to Jesus. David could love God, but he couldn't forgive sin. Jesus can do both of those. David could love God, but he couldn't make you love God. David couldn't make me love God. Jesus has the power to do that. And fundamentally, when we think about uh, these kings, David and Jesus, and how it leads us to Paul's conclusion, the most important question that, that we can ask today isn't, what have you done? What is your past? The most important question that, that we can ask today is whose kingdom are you in? Because at the end of the day, God looks to Jesus as the king. And if you're in Jesus' kingdom, that is what God cares about. Are you in a kingdom of yourself? Are you in a kingdom where you're on the throne? Or are you in a kingdom where Jesus is on the throne? Are you in a kingdom where you are responsible for the economic policies 
of your, of your, uh, of your futile state? Are you in a kingdom where if, if you don't make it this week, everything is doomed and you will be destroyed? Or are you in a kingdom where you are guaranteed a future? You're guaranteed an inheritance. What kingdom are you in is what the Bible and what we should be asking. But how do you enter into Jesus' kingdom? That's the question. We can see this physical kingdom of Israel where they had to physically leave Egypt and enter into a land and be established. And we could say that in the kingdom of the world, in the kingdom of Andy, I'm born into it. Nine months and I'm here. I'm in the kingdom. How are you born into the kingdom of Jesus? That's really the question that Paul's answering for us today. How can you be born into the imperishable kingdom, the one that won't fade, the one that your inheritance is guaranteed? It's through faith. It's through belief in Jesus. The most important question we should be asking isn't, what have you done? But it's, have you believed in Jesus? Whose kingdom are you in? So, so we're left to think here, is Paul, is Paul saying something new? Is, is he a true Charles Hodgian? And we could say that, that Paul is standing on an ancient foundation of God's revelation. Paul is standing on an ancient promise What's new is that he has seen it come to pass. Paul's seen it come to pass. It's new news of old promises. So how does, the plot, how does this apply to us? How does Paul's conclusion of forgiveness and justification coming from a history of Israel and the promises to David well, so what? So what? Well, if we've been Christians for any number of time, we'll have instinctual answers. I need to be forgiven. No one does good. No, not one. All, is, all are condemned under sin. The wages of sin is death, Andy. Yes. Yes, it is. Which is why we gather every Sunday to rehear this message of forgiveness. It's why we gather together every Sunday to rehear the good news that we could never be justified by the works of the law, but through believing in Jesus, we can have forgiveness. The law. What is the law? How does it apply to us? Well, we could summarize the law saying, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, might, to love your neighbor as yourself. In this, all the commandments are summarized. And if we look at the world around us, it's an utter failure. It's a catastrophe. Collectively, we see failure. Just in the past few months, we've seen whole cities, whole neighborhoods burning, literally. We've seen cold-blooded murder broadcasted into our living rooms. We've seen selfishness work itself out in, in every public sphere as 
a love of money, a love of influence, and a love of pleasure are the repeated priorities in a time of national and global crisis. But we see those failures collectively, but, but all those collective failures are in some ways nothing more than thousands and millions of individual failures multiplied by many people. We don't have to look at the news to see that we are in desperate need of salvation. We've all seen our marriages become places of bitterness and hatred. We've all had resentment towards our kids. We've all been tempted, and some of us have, pushed away from our gospel community groups because they simply don't understand me and they never will. We've pushed our girlfriends or our boyfriends past physical and emotional boundaries that they're comfortable with and frankly past what God would bless. We have lived in shame about what someone else has done to us our whole, in our whole life. We sit in that. We were created to be in the image of God reflecting his perfect holiness, righteousness, and truth to the creation of the world. But if we're honest, we're, we're all prone to hate our own lives, to hate our fellow human, and in doing so, we hate God. This is a wasting disease, and none of us are immune to its sickness. And if we consider it rightly, the weight of this is crushing. We, we cannot fulfill the law on our own. It only condemns. But this is the scandal. This is the absolute scandal of the power of God in Christ Jesus. And this is Paul's point of his sermon. Not only does Jesus bring forgiveness from our sins, not only is it whoever believes in Jesus is forgiven, but Jesus breaks the power of the law to condemn. Jesus not only forgives, he breaks the power of the law to condemn. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is justified from everything which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. If you're already a Christian, how does this, how does this flesh itself out? That we live with some sense of the law every day, but we're called to be free from it in Christ Jesus. What Paul's sermon says is, is fairly clear to a weekly churchgoer, to someone who comes every Sabbath day, every Sunday, to hear the law and the prophets taught. Our greatest temptation is to not understand. Our greatest temptation is that we won't receive. We, our greatest temptation is to be like those in Jerusalem who you do not recognize Jesus or understand the utterances of the prophets. A really practical way to think about this is, is, is to realize that we, we cannot share the throne of our hearts with Jesus. We we can't share that throne. 
Jesus has exclusive domain over it. And chances are, if, if you've been walking with Jesus for 5, 10, 15, 20, 40 years, it can be easy. It can be easy to think, well, I'm, I'm a mature believer. I've sacrificed a lot to Jesus. I've given a lot to the church. I've ministered a lot to broken people. So it's okay. It's, it's, it's okay if I'm kind of a co-chair with Jesus. I've, I've earned my spot on this team. Friend, you are unworthy to untie the sandal on Jesus' foot. It's easy to come every Sabbath to hear about the kingdom of Jesus. And yet, and yet we have anxiety about tomorrow. Will I get COVID tomorrow? Will there be money in the bank account tomorrow? We fear for the future. We pressure our kids to, to behave in certain ways because we don't actually believe that the gospel is big enough for their misbehavior. You recognize, we recognize that other people need the gospel, but yet we have to sit that I am unworthy of God's lavish forgiveness. The greatest temptation that as a Christian we have is that we come every Sunday, but we leave unchanged by the gospel of forgiveness. And collectively, I would, I would exhort and plead with my own heart this morning, I prayed, and, and for all of us, that we beg God for sight and for understanding. God, would, would you help us to see your worthiness? Would you help us to see that you're exalted in power, Jesus? Would you help us to see that the weight of the law has only crushed me this week and I need someone to free me from it? Ask God for those mercies. Ask God for new sight, Christian. And finally, as we think about applications to Christians, do you know that you're forgiven, Christian? As we've talked about the sermon and we've talked about what the law does in our hearts, how it's condemning. Christian, do you know that this morning you're freed? This morning, there is no more condemnation for you. This morning, you are justified. There is an infinite, eternal creator God this morning who says, you are right in my sight. You are clean, Christian. Jesus frees everyone who believes from the law of Moses. If you're not a Christian yet, what is this message? What, what should you do this week? If this message is true, and you don't have to believe it is, uh, as Christians we would say that it is true, and historically it's verified. This happened in history. And the real question isn't if it's true or not, but the question is, will you respond or not? And first of all, just thanks for being here. Whether you're attending virtually or here in the room, thank you for being here, non-Christian. The passage ends, we think about verse 47 together for just a brief moment, and it says, For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, 
that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, it's tempting to think that as a church, we're a bunch of uh, people who think we're right and everyone else is wrong. And, and it's true. We do think that. We, we think that Jesus is right and that because the world is wrong, we have to share this message. And it could be that you, non-believing friend, are, have, have already sensed that you don't walk in light that the answers of this world have not been sufficient for you, that in the halls of ASU, you, you haven't been satisfied. On the crossroads of Mill and Fifth Street, you've only been found empty. Verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Anyone who believes can be forgiven. And God is the author of that belief. It could be, non-Christian, that if you sense the truth of this message and you desire to respond, that that is God himself working in your life. And we don't want to manipulate or make you feel anything that's not actually what God's doing in your heart, but we'd love to chat with you. We'd love to connect. If uh, you're attending virtually, um, send us your digits. We'd, we'd love to reach out, be in touch. Simply to let you know the joy that we have found in this forgiveness, that we've been freed from the law. We've been freed from being in the kingdom of ourselves. The most important thing about you isn't what you've done. It's about what kingdom you're in and what you believe about Jesus. Join me in prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a loving, compassionate, patient Father. And we come to you this morning as your children, and we ask that as we step out into another week, remind us that we are forgiven. Remind us that we don't live in the bondage of the law, we live in the freedom of the gospel. Remind us that we've been adopted and our inheritance is unshakable. And as the anxieties and the pressures of the next 24 hours, the next seven days, creep into our lives, work, money, health, family, bring us security in knowing that you will make sure the mercies that you promised through David. Lord, for, for those who are joining us and visiting but have not made any profession of faith or um, claim to the benefits in Jesus Christ, I just ask that uh, you would kindly, graciously show them your favor this week, that they would sense that you're with them, that they would sense that Holy Spirit, um, you are at work in their lives and that they too can have forgiveness and freedom. They too can have the light and salvation that you promised to the nations. God, we're so grateful uh, just to be in your church and listening to your word. I ask that you bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen.